Hello and welcome to Talking Eds, APN Educational Media's weekly review podcast, comprising the team behind Early Learning Review, Education Review and Campus Review. I'm Patrick Avenal and I'm the news editor for these sites. We have two interesting conferences coming up. In the higher education space, the Campus Review team is holding the Higher Equity Summit on Monday 26 September 2016. This meeting of minds will examine the various barriers to equality in higher education. Head to campusreview.com.au and follow the links to High Equity Summit. The Education Review team is preparing the Protect Ed Conference, a look at how technology is changing the education sector and what precautions schools should consider in the digital age. This conference is on Friday 21 October 2016. Go to educationreview.com.au and look for Protect Ed. And now, body image issues manifesting in preschool, why did a USQ ecologist withdraw from a conservation conference, and who comes out on top in yet another university rankings release? I'm joined by Lauren Smith from Early Learning Review. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Patrick. How are you going this week? Pretty good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And James Wells is the editor of Education Review and Campus Review. How are you going, James? Good. How are you? Very well. Get up to anything interesting this week? Uh, not that interesting. It's good to see we both leave. We all leave uh, very focused lives on the education sector, mm. not letting anything distract us. So part one. Lauren, you looked into an interesting but troubling story out of the UK. Kids as young as three are demonstrating body image worries, turning down food that they fear will make them fat. Tell us more. So this was a study done in the UK by an organisation called the Professional Association for Childcare and Early Years, or PACI, and they actually looked at teachers' um, observations of children. And although there was a small sample size of only around 350 teachers, they did have some disturbing findings to report and those were that almost a third of teachers had heard a child label themselves as fat and 10% labeled themselves as ugly and one of the consultants to this Pacey organization said that we know for sure that early experiences matter the most and we need to be very careful about how even inadvertently we signal to children that they should think negatively about their bodies and how they look And she added that there is some evidence to suggest that even four-year-olds are already aware of how to lose weight. One thing I found amazing about this story is that when I was in the age bracket, they're talking about three, three and five, three to five years old, I'm not sure I had the self-awareness to know what overweightness or ugliness was. I think maybe that could be because back then kids tended not to be overweight, so... It could just be the fact that obesity rates have increased exponentially over the past 20 or so years. Kids have always been ugly, though. That's true. But I think, again, with the rise of, you know, mass media, the internet, um, there are a lot more sort of body images out there for people, including kids, to compare themselves to. Well, it just seems to be because the parents care about it more. I remember that recently there was, uh, you know, discussion around uh, Sydney PR queen Roxy Jasenko's, you know, compulsive sharing of her two young children on Instagram. They have their own accounts. And I think that sort of feeds into it now that, that you know, your children's appearance seems to be a reflection on your self-worth. And not just the fact that, they, you know, they're wearing nice clothes and they're well shot. Mm. They're actually how well you're doing up your child, which is, you know, making it more of a competitiveness, making it more about... Uh, a child's self-worth in comparison to other people rather than in and of itself. 
Yeah, you've got to wonder where these kids are getting these perceptions from. Are they getting them from other kids? And if so, where are those kids getting them from? It must only be older adults because kids don't come up with these body image concepts on their own. Yeah, I, I personally found this story quite troubling because, I mean, you know, it's always good to be a healthy weight. Uh, but, you know, appearance is, you know, one of the least important things in the world, I think, when it comes to people's personality and assessing people and their self-worth. So I, I certainly hope that, uh, you know, this trend doesn't come to Australia and that these kids uh, can overcome these these issues. Wouldn't surprise me if it's already in Australia. It yeah, hasn't been recorded. Yeah, as I said that, I thought yeah. that I was being a little bit naive there. In part two... James, controversy hit the conservation through the sustainable use of wildlife conference, forcing one of the keynote speakers, University of Southern Queensland ecologist Dr. Ben Allen, to withdraw. What happened? Dr. Ben Allen was due to give a keynote speech regarding how wild dogs are being shot by farmers and being culled in northern Queensland, in country Queensland, because they're pests, they kill livestock. And his argument was, well, just put it simply, why don't we make a dog meat export market and export it all to Asia, <laughs> which went down really well in the social media sphere, of course. And so there were two petitions I found, both of about, about 7,000 signatures each, calling for him to be sacked, calling for USQ to apologise, because that, they support, the university supported his argument. And yeah, so, and then he eventually just stepped down because from what I've been told, he got death threats, he got hate mail and USQ's PR had to deflect that all. There's a lot going on in this story because it also has the, um, it has the conservation issue, but it also has the sort of the, the subtle racial stereotyping and racism of sending dog meat to Asia, which, you know, carries with it, you know, connotations, you know, about cliched nutritional habits of, of Asian people. But it's also got the, the fact that a conference was sort of, a person was kicked out or pushed out of speaking at a conference, which sort of isn't a conference where you're supposed to hear ideas that might challenge your views. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think it was, the conference didn't have the issue. It, social media had the issue. Well, people, certain elements of social media, mainly the animal, animal rights activists had the issue with this, with Ben Allen. So, and he made his own decision to withdraw. That was made very clear to me. The... What I find interesting is that wouldn't a person, instead of campaigning to get this person off a, off a list of speakers, wouldn't it be better for them to go to the conference, put their hand up and ask some challenging questions rather than, you know, trying to silence anyone that doesn't agree with you? You're thinking logically, though. <laughs> Lauren, do you, do you think this sort of feeds into our culture of wanting to force away anything we disagree with and create echo chambers? I feel like when you have extremists on any side of a debate, nothing meaningful gets discussed. And I think this is a case in point for that. And the thing is, in social media, extremists have the same platform as the mainstream views do. It's not like um, mainstream media whereby the extremist voices are filtered out. Yeah, speaking of extreme voices, I mean, you, you see... They're you, increasingly less. <laughs> you turn on TV and you see, like the Fox News show. I imagine that everyone who watches Fox News just does it to have their views repeated mm. back to them. And I think the same thing about people who read The Guardian. It's mm. like, I, I, I would like to see a culture where people sort of go out there and actually, I'm, I'm a left-wing person, but I'm going to listen to Alan Jones this morning, or I'm a right-wing person, but I'm going to pick up The Herald and, and read it just to mm. have my views sort of challenged a little bit. Mm. I, I agree completely with that. And another interesting point about this story is um, that... The head of USQ's PR actually um, told me that this case shows that researchers, when they're researching controversial topics, they need to develop a PR strategy to deal with all, all the stuff that 
that may happen like this. But then you also have to question why he chose this topic, possibly because of its controversial elements, which perhaps would attract research funding or mm. whatever else. So I mm. think that there's more to it than yeah. that. In the past, though, controversial t topics don't um, generally attract that much funding for that very reason, especially the case in point is on medical marijuana. You've only really got to study funding if you're out to prove that medical marijuana caught, that's marijuana caused schizophrenia in teenagers or makes you forget. But this was before that we were realising the benefits of marijuana in healthcare. In part three, this week we saw the release of yet another set of university rankings. It was the turn of QS to rank the world's higher education campuses. QS describes itself as the leading global career and education network for ambitious professionals looking to further their personal and professional development. They have 250 staff in offices in London, Paris, Bucharest, Stuttgart, Mumbai and Singapore. And I presume one of those people formulates the rankings and the remaining 249 work in the PR department sending out press releases about the rankings. These days the university rankings come thick and fast. So much so that even QS acknowledges on its website that the proliferation has meant that people don't really know what makes for a top university and how these rankings are formulated. QS says its rankings are based on 11 different fields of assessment, research, teaching, employability, internationalization, facilities, online and distance learning, social responsibility, innovation, arts and culture, inclusiveness and specialist criteria. So QS rankings for 2006 put MIT on top, followed by Stanford, Harvard, Cambridge, Caltech, Oxford quite low at number six, University College London, ETH Zurich, Imperial College London and the University of Chicago rounding out the top 10. Australian unis to make the cut included ANU at number 22, Melbourne at 42, Sydney at 46 and UNSW at number 49. Also in the top 100 are UQ and Monash. The lowest ranked Australian uni for those keeping score is USQ, and that's in the 700s. Look, I let out an ironic whoop when I saw that my alma mater, ANU, was best among the Aussies. But I wonder, do students at the universities pay attention to these rankings? Do high school kids look at them when they're applying? Is it just about, is it just a mechanism for VCs and professors to pat themselves on the back? Sort of, in addition to talking about the rankings, how do you feel about rankings in general? Um, well, to answer the first part of that question, it's not Australian students who pay attention to the ranking, it's the international students who pay attention, which is why the VCs care about them so much, because your placement determines where the international students look and where they enrol. Um, but as far as I think about the rankings, they're largely unimportant. <laughs> I think there's a difference between, say, the top tier universities and then the second tier and the third tier, but in terms of individual rankings, I think certainly in Australia, I haven't noticed that that really makes much of a difference to students, nor to employers or to other people I've spoken to. It does seem to be like a whole industry now just around these rankings. I mean, the, the, there's obviously a subscription model and an application model that, that funds the, the companies that do it, 250 staff members in six exotic cities. The, and so they obviously have to churn out the rankings, which you know the media then writes about, which promotes the ranking company. And then it just seems to me as though we've got that ranking out of the way, and then the next week we'll do a ranking that is just slightly different. Mm. The top 50 universities that are under 50 years old, which is a real ranking, you know, the top 100 universities in the sciences. And, and perhaps some of those have merit, especially if you're trying to attract you know, a full fee paying postgraduate uh, you know, or undergraduate student who wants to travel somewhere. But I, I look at them, I say they've almost become like a, a self-parody of themselves. Mm. When, they're so, when the rankings are so self-aware that they have to explain 
you know, how they have their methodology in a way to dispel the rumours that they're so arcane, mm. I, I find it quite fascinating. Well, um, Times Higher Education, which is QS's main rankings rival, <laughs> issued a press release on the same day saying that Times Higher Ed's rankings just passed an order by PricewaterhouseCoopers, which the implication was that QS's weren't watertight. Well, look, uh, when I see when I see Oxford at number six, I, I think surely uh, surely there were discussions in the hallowed halls when, when they saw that. Mm, I think everyone just likes to look at the list. I feel like Oxford's been slipping in the rankings over the past few years. Maybe um, they didn't um, give QS a favourable write-up in their book. Well, they're going through a tough centenary century. I mean... The 1600s, the 1700s were great for Oxford. They took a dip in the 1800s. Now they're, they're stor- they storm back during the 20th century. England's no longer in vogue. It's all about the US. It is true, mm. though. The, and the other, the other trend I've noticed is the rise of Asian universities on these lists. Yeah. And what we're seeing is a lot more Chinese, Singaporean, Korean and Japanese universities right at the top. Uh, you know, and I find that quite fascinating because, as you said, Lauren, there was a huge trend. It became an American university right on top for the last 15, 20 years. And now it seems that Asia is coming up and it's really going to change the way sort of people study and, and where they go. Mm. Though a lot of those Asian universities are just satellites of Western universities. I'm not sure if the ones that you're talking about are of that kind. I'm t- or? talking about, no, they're, they're, you know, These are, the University yeah. of Beijing, you know, proper yeah, universities and cities. They're also being pumped with funding by the governments as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, compared, always helps. Compared to Australia. And there's a new, there's a bit of a trend going on where there's Australian students going over to China to study. Bit of the reverse of what's happening currently. So, yeah. Well, I, I think that, I think that would be good to see mm. more uh, of it happening in the other way around. More Australians going over to Asian universities, coming back with new skills, new insights. The question is, will they come back? Well, I, you know, Kevin Rudd did. <laughs> Do we want him to? <laughs> James, Lauren, thank you very much for joining me for Talking Eds. What have you guys got planned for the rest of the week? I'm seeing flight facilities this weekend. Excellent. Wow, that's really cool. I saw them at a Samsung PR event once. They're very fly. Lauren? In the spirit of education, I will be studying on the weekend. Oh, you've got exams coming up? Or just I have assessments? assignments due. Shortly. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, please join us again next week for Talking Eds. Thank you for listening. Bye.